This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. My thanks to you, series listeners. You are in 40 countries, and you have supported this podcast in ways I could not have dreamed of more than a year ago. Thank you for listening to our stories of education, innovation, and imagination, and creativity from across the Hawaiian Islands. We promise to keep delivering professional development in your pocket, even in the middle of a pandemic. In the last episode, I talked with Janica Breslin, a remarkable, a creative, an innovative language arts teacher at Konawaina Middle School on Hawaii Island. My guest today for this final episode of semester one of season two is Aaron Jamal Shorn, Nalokai Foundation Program and Startup Camp Director and Capstone Coordinator at Hawaii Preparatory Academy on Hawaii Island. At Nalokai, Aaron creates and implements curriculum, hustles to find mentors, and teaches digital storytelling. Outside of Nalokai, he is focused on creating student-centered systems to authentically tell the story of learning communities. At Hawaii Preparatory Academy, aka HPA, he teaches digital journalism and social entrepreneurship courses that are centered around product-based learning, the lean startup methodology, project management, and building digital brands. The class is supported by mentors across industries working directly with students on their products. Aaron's professional background is in international business, digital storytelling, operations, management, UX slash UI, and content creation. And oh yes, Aaron is the director of HPA's Capstone program. And now, here's my conversation with Aaron Jamal Shorn. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Josh, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege and honor to be here. So Aaron, I'm going to change things up a bit for this last episode of semester two of season two. Um, Sorry, semester one of season two. Um, So rather than my usual 10-question format, uh, I'm going to hit you with a bunch of short prompts, meaning some short phrases, short sentences, maybe a short question, a provocative set of words, or maybe just a word, and you feel free to react, respond, reflect, knock it out of the park. Does that sound okay? Sounds like a fun adventure. Awesome. Okay. Let's do this. Um, Before we start, Aaron, um, please tell our radio listeners the meaning of your three names. Um, my first name is Aaron. Um, Aaron was the brother of Moses um, and was um, thought to be enlightened, so enlightened. Um, my middle name is Jamal, which means beauty. Um, and I was born on the day of Jamal, in the month of Jamal, um, in the Persian calendar. And had a mom who was multicultural before it was in vogue to be multicultural. And my last name is Shorn, um, which is chimney or chimney sweeper, Schornsteimer in German. Um, 
and I come from a grandfather um, who was a Holocaust survivor. Um, he was a tool and dye manufacturer, and because of that, he was in a slave labor camp as opposed to a concentration camp. And that um, that story of um, craftsmanship and survival has always been a huge part of um, the legacy he's passed down to his children, his grandchildren. Wow, that's awesome. Um, my name is Joshua Engel Rapoon. Joshua, for obvious reasons, is a biblical Old Testament name. Uh, Engel is angel in German, and Rapoon is actually the crest of our family, shows a partridge very prominently, and that's the best that we can figure about the meaning of the Rapoon name. Um, so that's very cool. I love names. I love the meanings of names, so I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, okay, so Aaron, here's the first prompt. Founding, right. founding member of the Empiricists Club, University of Massachusetts. Um, I went to UMass for undergrad. Um, I was actually in 12 different schools before college, um, traveling around, grew up in Southern Africa, culture shock into Massachusetts, culture shock into Central Massachusetts, and then um, the Empiricist Club was a group of um, college students and mentors that um, met um, twice a month around difficult topics, um, topics that are uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about, whether it was affirmative action, whether it was structural racism, or if it was about um, what was happening, you know, in our very week. Um, during the second Bush administration. Um, it was a really cool place to um, grapple with these tough topics and issues in a really um, politically diverse group. So, you know, follow-up question, um, Aaron, assuming, or maybe not assuming, but noting that that our country has potentially lost the ability to have civil discourse, um, in what ways can education help us regain that ability? And I know that's a big question out of the gate, but what do you think? I mean, I think having, having education rooted in empathy, you know, really living the mantras of diversity, equity, and inclusion that people like Rodney Glasgow and others at the forefront of this space teach and talk about um, is a great way of um, helping to foster a new age of public citizen, um, someone engaged in the public sphere that is not just interested in winning an argument, um, is not just on MSNBC or on Breitbart, um, but is truly trying to foster understanding and consultation. Um, that's really what I was trying to do naively um, as someone in my you know, late teens at UMass with the Empiricist Club. Um, but there were some really beautiful lessons in it. Such as? Such as um, ensuring that a room has a diverse array of opinions, um, such as making the conversation not about the person, but about the topics you're discussing, um, such as challenging you know, yourself, um, as opposed to calling someone out, calling someone in, um, and, and trying to create a dialogue when it's, when it's possible. And sometimes it's not. And sometimes, you know, 
you have to be okay with that as well. Mm. I'm I'm curious to know how the club at UMass actually selected the topics to talk about. How did that happen? Uh, we talked about it as a group. We talked about um, issues that were coming up um, that week. We all we wanted to do was find something that was difficult to talk about mm. and and really stay in it and stay in those moments. And, and once and, you, you know, had, yeah. you know, I was, go ahead. And for me, you know, like, um, as I grew, as I went to high school in Georgetown, Texas, which is right outside of Austin, very, very conservative place. I, I wanted to rebel against that. I'd wear my Che Guevara shirt and blast rage against the machine. Um, and when I went to UMass and, um, was wearing my red, black, and green wristbands, was an Afro-Am major at the school, um, was living every cliche about someone in their late teens that's kind of mm-hmm. finding out and figuring out politics in America. Um, I also saw those viewpoints change too. I also started moving towards the middle. Um, and I was really interested in that transition uh, that we all go through as thinkers and as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. It, it really jumped out at me, uh, you know, as I was looking through your resume and just thinking about what it's like for college students right now. And that there's a lot of discussion going on nationally about echo chambers and that colleges are, are becoming that way or that they're leaning one way or the other. Um, and I just keep wondering, how do we how do we do what you did at UMass? How do we get together, decide the topics that are difficult, and how do we move forward through that and really reflect and recognize our own changes in thinking as that happens? Um, so that's very cool. Okay, so Aaron, next prompt: um, planning and transition eight team eight member team lead at Target in West Oahu 2012? Um, wow. Um, <laughs> my wife and I were in Washington, D.C. Um, we met at a place called the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Northern Israel. And um, we wanted my wife to get her master's first. Um, and so we moved to D.C. She was going to George Washington and getting her master's in um, international development. She had this incredible job at a place called the Tahereh Justice Center. Mm-hmm. which works to um, get women fleeing gender-based violence green card status in the U.S. And I had a series of um, foundational jobs, first at Hogan Lovell, which was uh, a white shoe international law firm, and then at SHI, Family Health International, which was a really large um, international development firm. Um, the jobs fed my ego. Um, I felt like I was growing professionally. And then we had our daughter, Alea. Um, and my wife is... Um, on a, in Oahu girl, she grew up in Mililani, um, went to boarding school here on the Big Island, actually where I am right now at Hawaii Preparatory Academy. And she said, we're raising our children in Hawaii. So we moved to Oahu without jobs, um, which is never a great idea. Um, and um, I searched and I searched and, you know, applied for some cool jobs at Booz Allen Hamilton or Hawaiian Airlines and finance, but nothing stuck. And as our savings slowly disappeared, I saw this job opening um, at Target and had no background in retail. But the idea of the Planogram team, the team that redesigns the store right. every single day, um, was really interesting to me. And so I applied and got the position. Um, classic middle management. Um, and uh, I think I was totally unaware of um, the struggle of 
my lack of assimilation into Hawaii, mm. my lack of understanding culture. Um, so Howley, I didn't know what the word Howley meant. And I took over a team of um, seven people, almost all on their second jobs, mm. which is the reality of what it takes for many people to live on Oahu because of rising housing costs. Um, one, one person that I was in charge of would sleep in the parking lot between shifts from Ko'olina, um, you know, mm-hmm. a couple, you know, 10 minutes away um, in the Kapolei um, parking, parking, parking lot. And I was horrible at it, just horrible at the job. Um, and it was a 10 o'clock at night till 8 a.m. position. And so it was just this extremely humbling experience of not being great at it with a newborn um, and, um, and it was a struggle, man. It was a real struggle. But, but it made me really understand the socioeconomic conditions of Hawaii. It made me understand the power of education and mentorship or the lack thereof. And it pushed me in the direction of education. So I'm deeply grateful for it. Mm. So Aaron, what, you know, follow-up question to that. What are, again, very general, what are the ingredients in your mind that go into making a great team? I think DEI is at the forefront, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Having a group of people that come from different backgrounds that have different life experiences and that have different skill sets is a huge part. But what connects it all together is a shared vision um, or a shared culture um, wrapped in um, integrity and truthfulness in transparency and a shared vision that, that, you know, gets the paddle in the water that gets the work done and creates a plan. I'm a big believer in project management. Um, both, both with the teenagers I work with, but also with the adults I work with. And okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, call an audible here, Aaron, I want to ask you, because I know that you've seen Ted Dintersmith's film, most likely to succeed. Um, you know, the story for those people who are listening, who've seen the film, uh, and even for those who haven't, um, there's a, 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 a story that goes throughout the entire film about a kid named Brian. And Brian is sort of the project manager as um, a team of students move towards a public exhibition night where they're going to do this kind of combination of social studies and mechanical engineering, a big wheel. Um, And Brian, uh, as the project lead, um, sort of leads the team astray and they don't get to present. And But in the end, Brian works his way all the way through the summer to get the job done, but he does it alone. So, what are your what are your thoughts about that story that's told in Most Likely, and you know about the way that it was portrayed, and you know thoughts about failure as a way of growing? I think you need real opportunities. You need cause and effect to be real in school for students to see the impact of when they do work and when they don't do work. What was powerful about that story and the narrative of, of the film in general was that youth were pouring their capacities, what made them unique, into a product, into something that would be shown. But it was high stakes. Um, and the, the learning lesson that that student found um, and reflected on in some of the kind of toughest scenes of the movie were um, probably the most important lessons he learned in high school. Um, 
taking himself up after failure, continuing to work on it after the showcase, and that not just being the end of the product. There, there's a spirituality in that. There's a power in that that I think impacted me and gave me chicken skin. Mm. And so if you had a moment, Aaron, where you, let's say, were sort of dean of curriculum at High Tech High where the, where the film takes place, and you were asked into a meeting with a group of parents and their, their kids who are on Brian's team uh, but didn't get to present because of what happened, you know, um, let's just say that in that meeting, the parents are pretty, still pretty upset about the way that that unfolded. Like, how would you, how would you talk to them? I would talk to them in the language of what comes after high school Mm. and that, and that their children are going to face these same struggles in university, in their career path, whether they're entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, or they're just working a job. And that in many ways, it's a blessing to experience something like this in the safety of school. Mm. Um, And that it's an important part of um, (laughs) the grit, an overused word, um, that is required to succeed, not just in 21st century jobs, but in the world that they're going to be going into. And, and then one more follow-up, pulling up a little bit, uh, or a lot, maybe to 30,000 feet and looking down, Aaron, um, it's, it seems to be the general consensus today that kids coming out of high school and moving into careers by and large, are going to have to be working in teams, which is very different in some ways than it used to be even 5, 10, right. 20 years ago. So I guess right. what, I'm, what I'm looking for is your validation that that is in fact true and that this is something that education has to have its eye firmly on. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to do a trip across California where I visited some incredible schools like Nueva, Da Vinci Schools, Altitude, Public um, public charter and private. And I wanted to see, um, I wanted to see the innovation they were doing and I wanted to see how they partnered with industry and how they partnered with people outside of their school. And then I went and visited entrepreneurs, the cliche 20 or 30 year olds who are in their second round of funding for their tech startup. Um, uh, the uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 year olds that are running, um, product teams and engineering teams, um, and people that are running really successful nonprofits. And when I asked those, entrepreneurs, the skills that were required, um, uh, what they were looking for in young people as they hired them, it was all about collaboration. It was about empathy. It was about understanding shifting team roles. So, you know, if you're on the engineering team, understanding why the design team is what they're doing and thus collaborating. It was about, um, it was about people that knew how to work with other people. And I think what worries me, Aaron, is that um, a significant number of educators are not hearing this or not willing to hear what you're saying and that they're continuing to educate as if the child is going to follow a singular path throughout life and will will not spend a lot of time collaborating or teaming with other people. Yeah, and I think one of the coolest learning lessons from the Nalukai Startup Camp which is um, a free program for youth across the state of Hawaii, um, where they um, build out social 
cultural um, and economic startups, essentially, or endeavors, um, was that so many of the students said, um, group work for me was being the person that did all the work. Group work for me was not having equity with the other two or three or four or five people I was working with. Mm -hmm. And they said that is the opposite of this experience. Mm -hmm. They said, I am seeing the power as a designer with working with someone that understands the culture of Hawaii and has a different life perspective. Or me as a coder partnering with a really strong writer. Mm -hmm. I can see how my ideas are going to get out into the world. And that was a profound moment for so many of the Nalukai high schoolers that we've been working with over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Awesome. We'll, we'll come back to Nalukai in a minute. Um, so, okay, Aaron, here's the next prompt. Uh, four words. Student, Hit me, Josh. Student, <laughs> student website build team. Yes. Oh, my God. One of, one of my biggest realizations as a human being. Um, so we moved from Oahu. I left the target position. Um, and um, I became the webmaster at Hawaii Preparatory Academy um, at HPA. Um, and I had the privilege of taking a website that looks like it was from the 90s and turning it into something that was not just best practice, but was state of the art when it comes to storytelling. And I partnered with a CMS company called Final Sight, so I didn't have to do the coding. But I quickly realized that how am I going to tell an authentic story of HPA if students aren't there with me telling it? How am I even going to build out the site architecture or the UX and UI experience of this website without youth that are a part of this community? Mm. And, you know, HPA, like, I knew more about this school when I started dating my wife than I knew about her family. It just, it holds a special place in so many of its graduates. Mm. And that's a really hard thing to write copy for and to create images for. And so, you know, I, I saw these incredible teenagers, um, Harmony Graziano, Davey Ragland, who are now graduating college, um, and many others. And I, and I asked them, I said, will you help me in this endeavor? Um, I can't give you credit. Um, but I can build out your LinkedIn profiles. I can tell this experience. Yeah, I can help you tell this experience for internships and jobs in the future. Mm -hmm. And I gave them titles. You're in charge of product. You're in charge of branding. Um, you're in charge of data. And um, we built out um, the structure for what the HPA website was to become. And I learned about the innate power, creativity, and use that is not being fostered at schools um, or really in the world. And so tell, tell me more about how you pulled the students into what you call student content operations. Like, what was that like? Take us inside the nuts and bolts of, of how that unfolded. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a story of if you build it, they will come. Um, we met, I met with that team once a week during lunch. They pushed me harder than I pushed them. Um, and that made me realize that after the website was built and launched, um, that um, there's so many other youth across the school that can tell the story of the institution. And myself as webmaster, um, who was at the time in charge of the website and social media, I have a platform to get their work out into the world, to help them not only build digital brands, 
but to get them not passive, to get them as creators, engaging and telling stories. And so I worked with admissions to create a team over the summer that became the videographers. Mm. They were all trained by this incredible teacher and videographer, Ari Bernstein. Um, and so many of them were in love with drones and the energy <laughs> lab at HPA in the energy lab at HPA had two very nice DJI inspired drones. And so we re- we went around the Island mm. and we told the stories of, of journey of integrity of, um, audacity and, um, those students created 13 videos that summer, many of which won awards mm-hmm. um, in, in the education in- industry. And it made me realize there should be a class that does this. And mm-hmm. so I audited a bunch of different college digital journalism classes. And um, I went to the Dean of Academics, um, Martin Farrell. Um, I went to our head of school and I said, let me teach this class called digital journalism. And I, um, I took all of the lessons of my work the year before and created a class that was product-based that had students um, pull from their skills and what they cared about Mm. um, and what they connected with at the school and outside of the school to build storytelling products that I could put on the website and social media. Mm. And it led to incredible relationships with Fred Barbash at the Washington Post, which led to students being published in the Washington Post. But it was the beginning of my understanding of the power of a product being the centerpiece of their education. Mm. Because there's no, you don't have um, this beautiful journey. You don't have this beautiful um, kind of process um, that is organic uh, without that product. That's what I found. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so I have a follow-up question, but before we do that, Hey, everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Aaron Jamal Shorn is the capstone coordinator at Hawaii Preparatory Academy and the startup camp director for Nalukai Academy. So, Aaron, follow-up question. So I know this might seem obvious, but what... what I've got to figure out how to ask this. What happens to the quote-unquote incoming student at Hawaii Preparatory Academy when what they're looking at in their exploration of the school's website is actually created by the students and not, for example, you know, a highly polished advancement team production of some sort? Like what what happens as a result of that? So um, I'll give you an example, not just with the website, but of Instagram. Um, During that time period, we had so many students um, from all over the world that chose our school because of the content that was on Instagram and the website. Mm. Um, and they were, and because they, they saw voice, they saw student voice, right? We, we took lessons from humans of New York and other great oh. visual and content storytelling. I and love humans we, of New York. <laughs> That's such an awesome oh, it's fantastic. Instagram. Yeah. No, and, 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 and at the root of storytelling is human connection and nostalgia, right? Is being able to connect, you know, parts of our lives with the story that's being told. And when you see that, they see authenticity, they see other people that um, are struggling and grappling with the same things as them, and they see a space that they can see themselves in. Um, There was one video where a student is wearing um, 
kind of like a goofy button up t-shirt. And he yeah. said, look at my shirt. It looks like <laughs> the front of a composition right. notebook. I love that one. Um, and he said, I feel comfortable here. And I thought that that was such a cool, like I didn't tell him to say that. That was something that totally came from, you know, from who he is as a person. And so, you know, there's, um, as a, as a goofy 35 year old white man, I'm deeply in love with nineties and early two thousands hip hop. Mm. And there's, there's a saying, um, in that ethos that game recognize game and real recognize real. Mm. Right. Um, if, if you see it in yourself and in the, in the content and the people that you're about to join, you're going to want to join them. And yeah. so I think that's always how I've lived my life as a content creator and a storyteller. Mm. But, but, what, but what made this amazing was the operation structure that we created. You know, the legacy of student projects that other students were able to create. Mm. All of that has gone into the work that I currently do. Mm. How you turn something that, is, that, is, that was at first a cult of personality into an operation structure um, is what creates legacy. And that's what I'm really obsessed with right now. Right. There's another video uh, that's part of that collection where a young woman describes how she comes to the realization that she wants to be an engineer. And it's like yeah. magic listening to her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell, yeah. Us, tell us a little bit more about her. I mean, she, she says, um, I realized I wanted to be an engineer by doing engineering. I realized I wanted to be a storyteller by doing storytelling. We have to create not just experiences, but infrastructure and schema and curriculum that allows youth to start interacting and engaging with the world and mm. impacting the world now mm. while they are in middle school and while they are in high school. And when you delay that process, you delay a student like that from viewing herself as an engineer or as a storyteller or as a scientist, right? Mm. And that's the work that we're embarking on right now. Right. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay. I had this conversation with a, a, a mentor of mine, Austin Stewart, and I was talking about this wall between the real world and school. Mm. And he said, there is no wall between the real world and school. We're completely in the real world. But every time you talk about that wall, every time you build it up, it gets in the way of youth owning and having agency over their education. Mm -hmm. And that's our role now as educators is to not, is to not put that wall up ourselves. Right. Right. Perfect segue to the next prompt, Aaron. So uh, five words, um, Hawaii Preparatory Academy Capstone Coordinator. Dream job. It's a K-12 job. Um, we have capstones at fifth, eighth, and 12th grade. Um, what a way to create and build an academic identity rooted in agency, rooted in autonomy, rooted in collaboration, um, it, it, these capstone years are culminating experiences at the bookend of lower school, middle school, and upper school. And I get to partner with people a hell of a lot smarter than me. Pualani Lincoln, Dr. Johanna Anton, Dr. Amy Cole, Dr. Mark Revalia, people that are living and breathing examples of what happens when you put passionate educators into school systems. Um, I get to build out an identity um, that is rooted in student agency. And I get to do that with an incredible team. So, okay, follow-up question to that. 
Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, I, I can't help myself. I'm a follow-up question kind of guy. Um, I love it. Um, We're well, unpeeling the onion together. Yes, the yes. And the onion smells like uh, like Maui onion. <laughs> it smells really sweet. Um, so, Aaron, most schools, especially private schools, ask students to do independent projects. That was my experience at, at three independent schools. Um, how does your capstone program take that idea to a different place or, or another level? So what I saw in high tech high was really cool. Um, but what I didn't see, and I'm sure it's being done now, um, is that the product or the project that the student was working on came from them. Right. And so at fifth, eighth and 12th grade through a lot of ideation, through a lot of skill development, um, youth and children are being asked to create something an, an, an iterative product that is rooted in who they are, is rooted in where they come from, what they're passionate about, what drives them, is rooted in the skills they have, the skills they want to gain, the networks they have. And then we're asking them to collaborate with each other and to share those skill sets with each other. Um, there's a 12th grade student who is interested in um, fighting the growth of invasive fish species. And so um, there's an eighth grade student that's interested in doing the same thing. Mm. And I'm really excited for them to partner up almost in a shared capstone experience mm. um, to be able to get their ideas out in the, into the world. Um, what, what's unique about HPA is that it's in fifth grade, eighth grade, and 12th grade. And what's unique about us is that it's mandatory for students. And so that receives pushback, right? But if you truly want to build a culture um, rooted in the four C's of 21st century thinking, rooted in youth being able to manifest their ideas and visions out into the world and impact the world, you have to bring your entire student body into that experience. Mm. And so that's what's unique about what we're doing. And I think that's what's really powerful about what we're doing too. Okay. So awesome. Perfect segue to the next prop, which is... Uh, four words, um, Hikari Shaver and Ivani Jamin. Oh, you are bringing it with your words today. <laughs> um, these, are, these are two incredible young women, um, both boarding students at HPA, that chose the school um, because of our turtle tagging program that Mark Rice and Laura Jim have built out over the years. Um, and last year was our inaugural capstone year for seniors. We had it in fifth and eighth grade, but last year was the first year. Both of those students were in um, the biotechnology capstone. And though we have 10 different capstone courses, they follow the same milestones and structures for every single course. And what's super cool about that is it creates a shared experience for seniors, but like incredible teachers like Dr. Anton, who was their biotechnology capstone teacher, took every document that I created formal proposals, project management docs, and optimized it for her class and most importantly for her cohort, for her students. And so both of those young women partnered with NOAA Fisheries and studied um, in real time um, in action research um, and collected um, the blood of sea turtles to understand forced feminization of sea turtles due to climate change, due to warming temperatures in the sand and in the water. And how they partnered with those NOAA researchers was something I never thought possible in education. 
they meant the, the SOPs and the training manuals they created were then used by those NOAA um, researchers um, and the websites that they created um, were then used by the mentors. That's, I mean, that's an incredible, you know, story in itself. But to watch Avani and Hickory be scientists in real time, watching the agency that they showed, watching the presentations that they created was mind-blowing for me. Mm-hmm. So, Aaron, riffing off of the presentation part of it, um, at the recent um, Schools of the Future conference, um, we featured a draft of a, of a new video that will be um, up at whatschoolcouldbe.org. This is a brand new site from Ted Dintersmith, and it, it's about digital exhibitions. So, Aaron, yeah. you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and, you know, exhibitions were fantastic when you could do them in person, but I'm sure that there's a lot of doubt out there that you can pull something like that off in the middle of a pandemic where we're forced to be so apart from each other. So what is the case for digital exhibitions? Well, what we found, because like many schools in quarter four, we had to completely shift to distance learning. And for many students, that was really devastating, whether they were in the middle of their research or they were building out um, an all-encompassing art project or, or so many other places. But how our youth pivoted while they weren't at school was truly remarkable. And what happened was um, being forced to do distance learning um, forced capstone teachers to do a lot more one-on-one conversations with them, Mm. almost like writer's workshop style. Mm. And it forced us to completely transition into, um, into recorded presentations because I realized that, um, you don't want to do a live presentation when internet is spotty, which can totally ruin the vibe and environment. So we did these great seven to 10 minute recorded presentations followed by live question and answers. And so in these one-on-one calls over Zoom with students in preparation for that, in the assignments that we created, the two minute video, the four minute video, you know, using Screencastify or recording a presentation via Zoom, their skill was constantly getting risen up their um, capacity and confidence was rising. And there were just more touch points with teacher and student to get a higher quality presentation. And so when this capstone showcase emerged in May over this week long experience, um, then they were prepared and they were excited. And talk to, talk to us a little bit about the interaction with the audience during these presentations. Like, what was the composition of the audience and how did those, how did those interactions help build relationships? Well, I, I remember, and I don't know if I told the story in that digital exhibition video, but I remember um, the week before an incredible mentor and friend of mine um, was asking me about this week and if I was stressed out and anxious. And I said to him, I just want there to be human connection on the Zoom call. Mm. I want them to be driven by, you know, human connection and by, um, and, and by people just, you know, celebrating each other. And he laughed and he said, it's a Zoom call. There's no way there's going to be human connection. You get through it, try to make sure someone doesn't Zoom bomb. But there was so much human connection because we constantly broke protocol to get family members who were on the call talking with their students, to get mentors who were on the call, um, you know, really engaging with the people that they'd mentored over the course of a lifetime. And for so many students, this became their form of graduation. 
This became a way of telling their journey through the products and the ideas that they were getting out into the world. And just seeing that was yeah. was tear invoking. Yeah, yeah. And I had the privilege of being part of one of those um, exhibitions, those digital exhibitions, actually with Ivani Jamin. And it was it was truly remarkable, especially the moment where the NOAA uh, members joined the call and talked about her work. That was just <laughs> astonishing, right? Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Authenticity. It goes all the way back to what we were talking about with doing content creation. Yeah. When there is authenticity, people get chicken skin, right? And Dr. Cameron Allen with with like joy in her voice talking about interacting and working with a student, Avani Jamin, like that shouldn't be um, an outlier. That should be what mm. education is. Mm. And that shouldn't be like a, oh my God, this, this 16 year old, um, you know, teenager is doing this work. Of course that's what school should be. Right. Right. Exactly. And to our listeners, again, you can see this film that we are talking about at whatschoolcouldbe.org, which was just launched last week. So everybody stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Aaron Short. Stay with us. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation are excited to announce the winners of the Education Innovation Teacher Challenge. Tyler Gage of Chiefas Kamakahele Middle School and Wesley Atkins of James Campbell High School are this year's winners, each receiving a $25,000 grant to implement their innovative learning programs. We look forward to seeing their ideas come to life. Farmers Hawaii sends a big mahalo to all teachers for the work they do that extends far beyond the classroom walls. To learn more, visit FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation.
My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today, we're with Aaron Shorn, a friend and colleague who serves as capstone coordinator at Hawaii Preparatory Academy on Hawaii Island. All right, Aaron, so here's the next prompt. Nalukai Foundation Program Director and Startup Camp Director. Laboratory space, my first word that goes back to you. Um, Nalukai was dreamed up by an incredible human being named Darius Monsef, um, who grew up in um, Waimea, um, was extremely successful in tech and in graphic design, and created the Nalukai Foundation to create a group of youth that had the capacity to make change and create business here in Hawaii. Um, when David Clark, um, who is possibly the greatest facilitator of youth I've ever seen in my entire life, um, took over at the helm as executive director, um, he brought with him um, not just a deep understanding of social and emotional learning, but redefining Nalukai um, based on where we are in Waimea, in Hawaii, in the Hawaiian Islands, and taking the indigenous knowledge and science um, and pure spirituality of Hawaiians and building that into Nalukai with cultural practitioners. It wasn't just a, bearded, a bunch of bearded white dudes saying Hawaiian phrases. It was bringing people like Pualani Lincoln and so many others um, into, this, into this world. Um, but at the core of Nalukai is relationships. At the core of Nalukai is teens, is youth who come together to solve problems that they face or that their community faces here in Hawaii. And it, it's been an incredible five or six years doing that with these other great collaborators. Mm. So Aaron, uh, I'm a fly on the wall at Halau Inana. Yeah. Uh, and the, going back, you know, to the summer of 2019, um, I'm a fly on the wall and Nalukai is underway. What am I hearing? What am I feeling? What am I experiencing? Well, let me throw that back at you. Why don't you tell me what you're feeling and what you're hearing? <laughs> well, and then let me build off on that. Well played, sir. Well played. Um, what I experienced at the moment that I came in was, first of all, teams. That really yep. jumps out at you is that kids are working in teams. The second thing is that you experience a lot of energy in the room. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, almost overpowering. The third thing is that unlike other programs, no disrespect intended that I've, I've come into to observe, the adults were not sitting off to the side, kind of waiting for the kids to finish something. The adults were deep into it with the kids in every possible way that you could imagine. That's, those are the three really big things that jumped out at me the day that I visited Analokai experience or Analokai camp day. I, I mean, the, the phrase makahana ke by doing one learns, roots my work in Analokai and as K-12 capstone coordinator at HPA. So what you witnessed was youth embarking on the journey of getting their ideas out into the world. What you witnessed was people going from passive in their education to active in their education people that had agency and owned this space. And there was excitement, there was power, there was almost a spirituality in that room because they were finding meaning, because they were building capacity, because they were gaining the confidence and believing that they belong in this space and this world. It is so hard 
to get youth to believe they belong in this space. Mm. So hard. Because modern education has been telling them not to, that they don't, that they need to wait, that they're not ready, that they don't have the skills to do it yet. Mm. And when you get them to, usually as they're talking to someone outside of classic education, the product developer at Twitch, the person that runs a Hawaiian-inspired nonprofit that has gotten their ideas out into the world, when they start seeing themselves as creators, mm. as entrepreneurs, as storytellers, like you mentioned before, that's the energy that you see and you feel. Mm. Yeah, and you can you can see the wheels turning as they think about how can I be in Hawaii, how can I stay in Hawaii and do the good work and change the community and make the community a better place. Um, you, it really jumps out when you when you are a fly on the wall at a in a moment like that. So, Aaron, there, there follow a question. There is project based, challenge based, problem based, place based, culture based, and about a dozen other hyphen based types sure. of learning. So, what makes product based learning unique and different? Let me let me um, before I answer that, um, we fall into education needs. Right. Yep. Um, we fall into the base world, and I'm totally guilty of it too. We fall into phrases like deeper learning, yep. design thinking. Um, what roots all of those things is agency. What roots all of those things is is having youth learn how to learn, right? And so that's at the core of of, of what all these words mean. Product based is different than project based, and this is what my master's was on, because it is rooted in the student. Um, what the student is creating becomes the centerpiece of the educational experience. Um, it allows a capstone teacher to now be a facilitator, to be a connector, a uniter, someone that gets um, some of the kind of walls in front of the student gone. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Product-based is when um, there is an outcome that has legacy that has an SOP or a white paper that allows youth to carry on that product that a student created, um, almost turning a high school into a research vessel. Um, Product-based is when a student wants to work and continue that work post high school. Um, and so um, I think that's what differentiates the work we did at Nalukai and the work that we're doing at HPA from some of the standard definitions from Buck Institute and PBL works, um, which are still incredible institutions that have influenced what I did. Right, right. Awesome. Okay, so another prompt. This is a quote, Aaron. I'm just going to read it to you and you can do what you want with it. Um, whether it is online learning, distance learning, or homeschooling, if students do not own their education and have the ability to lead it, then it is a passive experience. What COVID-19 and distance learning have showed us is that our teenagers are not prepared for the world and to have agency over it. Mm. So many of our students um, in the private school, public school, charter school world had so little understanding of project management. It was very difficult for them to keep track and on their assignments. Um, had so little connection to what they were studying, it became even harder to get themselves up in the morning to do it. Right. Um, yet, yet, in this inaugural capstone year, which was not perfect, 
by any means, which I had huge learning lessons after designing. So many of our capstone seniors at HPA threw themselves at this work, mm. pivoted in beautiful, majestic ways, right? You had something like 11 students in Pua Lincoln's migrations of Moana Nui Akea capstone. And their capstone was supposed to culminate on taking Makali'i from the big island to Maui. When that was taken away, that was devastating for them because of COVID-19. Yet they pivoted into their individual capstone products. And I don't know if you were at that presentation, Josh, but for three hours, they carried forward the legacy and lineage of their people. For three hours, they owned that experience. And that's going from passive to active. They turned those capstone presentations into something far more powerful than graduation. They turned them into a final of what it means to be an HPA student. And most importantly, they owned that experience. Mm. Wow, Aaron, you know, you've, you've given me a gift here in this moment. Um, let, me, let me explain it in this way. Um, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, I think, my wife and I watched a 60 Minutes segment um, was an interview with the general who is leading Operation Warp Speed, which is the, you know, the giant project to bring a vaccine to the United States and actually distribute sure. it. And and I think the the gift that you've given me is that what what I want more than anything in the world, Aaron, is I want a kid who is sitting there watching that 60 minute segment, not to go, oh, I have no idea how that could happen, but to say, oh, I have a really clear idea about what's actually unfolding out there. That's what I want kids to feel. I don't want them to feel disconnected from that. I want them to actually have empathy on that moment because they've been through something like that, a big project, complex project, like you described. I mean, I think, I think the stakes are much higher. Um, when I was traveling through California and that trip I was telling you about, three or four people said the same thing. They said there are ideas that can solve actual problems right now that can only come from youth because they, because they have not been tainted by what is best practice, because they have not been told, as, as many of us in our 20s and 30s are, what is possible and what is not possible. And so I want someone watching that video to be able to start ideating on solutions mm. and to start partnering with people in their sphere that they know and start connecting via LinkedIn and other modes with others and start forming a hui of youth and adults, an interconnected kind of link of chain that can start ideating on those problems and solutions too. Yeah. Um, and if they don't solve that, they solve something else. If they don't solve anything, they build capacity and knowledge that's going to help them and all of these other endeavors that are going to help the world. I mean, we saw it with Parkland. We see it with climate change. When youth are at the forefront of these movements, change occurs at a more rapid pace and there is more authenticity in those movements as well. Right, right. Um, quick follow-up question. I don't know if this is going to be quick or not, but how, how do the words head, heart, and purpose help parents develop a pandemic toolkit for learning? So head, heart, and purpose is one of the ideation activities we do at Malukai and at HPA. It's a giant Venn diagram on a big sheet of butcher paper. Um, and you draw this Venn diagram out. On the left, you have heart, 
you fill that with things that make you, you, what you care about, what you'll put your time into, what you love to watch, what makes you angry, um, what helps define you as a human being. Um, in the right, you label that circle head. You fill it with the skills that you have, the access that you have, who you know, what you know, what you want to learn, and so many other awesome prompts. And you use those to build something in the middle and purpose, whether that's a capstone, whether that's a product, whether that's a venture, whether that's an artifact of learning in the words of Ron Berger, you're connecting head and heart together to build something out. And in the article that I wrote for Honolulu Family Magazine, right. I was writing it in the context of things that you can do as a parent with your child or with your teenager now to help hijack the classes that they're interested in or not interested in and find meaning in them to help them build out this product or artifact of learning. Mm. When you get youth and children to understand this tool belt idea, that, that there is this tool belt that you are constantly adding to skills and capacities and methodologies and learning and passion and how those can manifest into real things that change you, your community and the world then you get used to become active in their learning experiences. Mm, mm. That was the wow. quickest way I could answer the question. But. <laughs> <laughs> that was fabulous. Okay, so so next prompt and building off of Ron Berger, uh, four words, unruler and student corner. Student corner was created by um, George Donev. Um, and he was in my digital journalism class um, either his junior or senior year. And he saw this problem that schools faced. There wasn't a, a place where um, youth could put their process and journey up and their product up and hold on to that post high school. Mm. Um, all the things I talked about with legacy, he was really interested in. But what was really cool is he partnered with underclassmen. He partnered with coders, people um, that um, had a skill set that he did not have. People like Morgan Dean, who graduated from HPA last year, who's currently taking a gap year to build Student Corner out. And then he hustled and hustled and hustled, getting Unruler to be used by the Hawaii Science Fair, by so many other schools, by hopefully HPA, when there's a budget for it, um, and for institutions across the state and I think across the world. Um, and I am not only proud of George Demet, I think he shows what's possible when we put this kind of education in front of youth. Um, Unruler is a tool that is like the Instagram for project or project-based learning, um, built out by coders and by product developers that truly understand the space. And it has become an assessment framework that makes it so much easier to qualitatively and quantitatively show the mastery of skills and for me at HPA with our seniors, it is a place where I can go into a feed and give real time advice or have students collaborate. To me, that's the power of a ruler. They are digital tools that are making this work more public, that are making this work easier to do and um, assessment driven. And I think what's great about a ruler is that at HPA, this, their senior year, assessment and feedback has to be actionable. They have to push the students' work along. They have to push their learning and their product development along. Otherwise, they get in the way. Right. And so what Unruler allows us to do is it allows us to make that feedback 
instantly implemented. It allows for collaboration to occur instantly, and that's powerful. Wow. Okay, that's fabulous. Um, Aaron, what, what first steps might a teacher take to shift from traditional teacher-focused grade assignments, graded assignments, to student ownership of learning and development, uh, you know, evaluation? Like, what, what are some first steps that an educator listening to this podcast might say, oh, you know, that, wow, that sounded really amazing. You know, I'm going to do X on Monday. I think you go on the innovation playlist, which is what you were alluding to before, mm-hmm. um, which is a website that has tons of micro tools. And I thought what Ted Dintersmith did such a great job of was saying, you don't have to do everything at once. Right. It was, if you build it, they will come. Um, implement something small and see how it grows and people will be attracted to it. Um, and so I think what, you, what I did was I looked at um, what my school did really well. Um, I looked at Patrick O'Leary, who is an incredible photography teacher, Harry Bernstein, videography, Dr. Bill Wicking, a mentor and hero of mine who built the Energy Lab and has lived student-driven learning for many, many years before it was in vogue. Um, and then you build projects around the strengths of your school. Because what that guarantees is that there is skill level there. What that guarantees in my digital journalism class at the time was that there were three solid videographers. There were four great photographers. There were six great writers. And so now you are not doing a disservice to those teams Mm. as they're building out things that will engage with the world because they have skill set. So if you have a school that is deeply rooted in the culture and knowledge of Hawaii, then the work that you do, the capstones, the outcomes, the products that should be created should obviously be influenced by that because it's what your students know and what they do well. Mm. And that doesn't mean that you can't try something brand new. It just means that it's that much harder to do, right? Um, I think about a student, Michael Hanano, who, is, um, who, who had a creative voice that I've seen very few adults have as a junior in high school. And so all I did was build a structure and get out of the way for him. You know, build a structure to connect him with other videographers and other storytellers. Have him create content for the website and then for himself. And now he's decided to pause on college and he's partnering with bands across San Francisco and California to tell their stories as a videographer. Mm. The school hired him to tell their story for fundraising videos. That to me is a huge success story for what we're doing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so Aaron, just a, just a couple more and then we'll let you go. Um, this one, two words, Aaron. Um, I know it's going to come a little bit out of the blue, but here are the two words. Nick Wong. Oh my God, Nick Wong! Can we just do a podcast on Nick Wong? <laughs> sure. We'll, we'll, we'll it's not re- fair that you're hitting me with Nick Wong like 50 minutes into this interview. Yeah. N- Nick Wong. Nick Wong is the embodiment of what I've been trying to do my entire edu- educational career. Nick Wong was in the very first year of Nalukai. Um, Nick Wong showed me and others what's possible when we when we return agency and when we get the hell out of the way sometimes. Nick Wong then became a core part of Nalukai's leadership team, um, building out the curriculum, the structures, the SEL experience. Um, Nick Wong is the future of Hawaii. Nick Wong is the embodiment of left and right brains someone who understands coding at a level very few people do, but understands humanity, empathy, 
and the culture of his people. Nick Wong is what happens when youth are given opportunity and resources. And Nick Wong is grit personified. Wow. Well played. And Pal Box is incredibly lucky to have him working for them in California right now. Yeah. Who, whoever, I mean, whatever, whatever you can do to fund this kid's future, whatever you can do to put him in leadership positions, I urge everyone to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, Aaron, I'm just, I'm so struck by the idea that, you know, a year ago, if you would have said, well, you know, Nixon, California, we'd be like, ah, oh, we wish he was here in Hawaii. No, the pandemic has revealed to us that we can do anything with anybody anywhere around the world. Um, we can do that already. Uh, so, you know, what's stopping us? Nothing's stopping us. Um, we can collaborate with Nick. We can collaborate with all kinds of people because we have all the tools that are necessary to do that. Anyway, that was my little uh, continuation of the thought. Um, all right, uh, two more, Aaron. Here's the next prompt. Um, what are you working on that gets you flying to the espresso machine in the morning? Um, utilizing capstones in fifth, eighth, and twelfth grade to build out an academic identity for a school. Um, being able to now try to backwards design it into the K four to five, six, seven to eight, nine, ten, eleven to twelve world. Um, looking at um, case studies like Thatcher's horse program for freshmen. Um, Thatcher is a school in California that I've long admired um, mm. that builds um, the culture and core values in a ninth grader that get lived through their 10th, 11th, and 12th grade experience and figuring out how to do that here in Hawaii um, with people like Pua Lincoln and other incredible cultural practitioners. Um, we, have, we have a line in HPA's mission statement, Traditions of Hawaii, and until we live that line, until we put resources into that line, until we understand what those words mean, um, they're not real. You know, Brene Brown talks about living the values, um, otherwise it's pure hypocrisy. And so I'm excited for building that out here in this laboratory space that is HPA. Um, I'm excited to challenge what high school looks like. I'm excited to challenge what post high school looks like. Um, having programs for youth after graduation that pull them from all over the world here rooted in Hawaii, where they can get their ideas out into the world. Whether those ideas happen at Halakumana on Oahu, Kealakehe or Honaka here, Molokai High School, or in Detroit or in West Virginia or in Botswana, mm. getting youth to come together and mm -hmm. do great work. And Aaron, there is a capstone association of sorts, right? There is. Um, it's a wonderful organization, the National Capstone Consortium. Um, one of the best PD experiences I ever had in my entire life was going and meeting those educators. You know, when you have these ideas, it can be, it can be lonely because there isn't a community of people that have them. And then when you meet those people, <laughs> tears start flowing down your cheeks yeah. because you see others that have struggled and grappled in this space and who are way ahead of you, mm. right? I, I remember going to Da Vinci schools, this charter school system in LA and meeting with these two um, incredible um, educators and entrepreneurs there. And the ideas that I was putting down in a Google Doc 
or a napkin, they lived for five or seven years. And that makes me feel like the work that we're embarking on is possible. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I would encourage anyone to get involved with the National Capstone Consortium. I think it's one of the one of the best ways to gain training in this work and to join another community of people that believe in the things that we believe in, the power of youth. Right, right. Fabulous. Okay, Aaron. So final prompt. Um, and I, I just so appreciate this time today, man. I mean, I love talking to you and I'm just so stoked that we can get your voice out uh, to the educator community so that they might be inspired to do what you described a couple of minutes ago, which is small steps lead to big change. Just take the step, iterate, move forward, reflect. Um, so here's, here's the last prompt you quote in a slide deck. I found this quote that you selected from John Dewey, <laughs> who said the following in 1897. Yeah. I quote, I believe that interests are the signs and symptoms of growing power. I believe that they represent dawning capacities. Accordingly, the constant and careful observation of interests is of the utmost importance for the educator. Whatever you build in your curriculum, you have to create tons of different versions of because you're going to have to throw it out the window based on your cohort. You're going to have to rebuild the curriculum, rebuild your assessment based on who's in front of you based on their interests and their capacities and what they love to do. Otherwise, you're not creating a space that's defined by relevancy and gives youth the power necessary to be able to do this work. That's what I pull from Dewey. You know, that dawning capacity, that power of youth to change the world, that power to understand the importance of learning and making that not just a lifelong experience, but something that they have agency over, that's what I pull from Dewey. But what scares the shit out of me is that he wrote that in 1897, mm. and yet schools still look the way they do. In halls of privilege, in halls where there is no privilege, in places of great internet connectivity, and in places where there is none. That school has not been more impacted by those words shows what we have to go up against. Shows the dangers of the status quo of education no matter who's president and no matter who's secretary of education. Mm -hmm. And so that, I mean, that puts a, that's a big call to action for us, right? And every, every time we don't make change, every time we don't put our work, you know, our, our, again, that paddle into the water, then it means that another year of youth didn't get that experience. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Fantastic. Aaron Jamal Shorn, thank you for giving us this time today. I love saying your whole name. What's up with that? I just, it trips off the tongue. Um, so It's not great for travel as a big goofy white guy. Uh, yes. But it's, it's, it's great for conversations like this. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you for this time, Aaron. Um, you and your wonderful family stay safe. You and your wonderful HPA community and Nalukai community, I hope that uh, you all remain in good health as we navigate this really, really difficult moment. And we look forward to having you on again at some point, possibly in 2021. 
um, where we can find out about some of the results of the work that you're doing at the moment with Capstone Building and all that. So appreciate you and uh, appreciate this time, Aaron. Can I just say one more thing, Josh, before we go? Go for um, it. I, I, I talk about people that make these opportunities possible for youth. Um, you have been that person for me and so many others across our islands. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for this advocacy. I want to thank you for the work that you've put forth, the time that you've put forth. Um, so many of us um, would struggle to get this work out into the world without you and without your partners. So a huge mahalo, Josh. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. It is, it is a labor of love for me. And I love what you're doing. And I love putting what you're doing out there to the world. So that's awesome. I appreciate you. And I thank you for that comment. All right. Stay safe. We'll talk to you soon. I am super pleased to note that 41 out of 41 listeners have given our podcast a five-star rating. We appreciate this very much. And thank you for the wonderful written reviews. If you love these episodes with remarkable and innovative educators and education leaders, please give us your own rating and write us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Galad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his email address and Facebook URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsinhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please stay safe, healthy, and physically, but not socially distant. And most of all, in the wake of our national election, bring kindness and compassion into the world. See you soon.